Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Daughters of Darkness. Today we kick off a series of episodes celebrating some of the work featured in the groundbreaking 1994 book, A Moral Tales European Sex and Horror Films 1956 to 1984. Over the course of four episodes, we will be looking at some of the most potent voices to spring from the sphere of Eurocult. These include Jess Franco, John Loran and Alan Robegrile, along with the focus of today's episode, Spanish director José Ramón Larraz. So join me, Kat Ellinger, and my co-host Sam Deegan as we explore the sexier side of Spanish horror. Through the psychosexual gothic poetry of Symptoms, 1974, the surreal dreamscapes and animalistic desire of 1978's The Coming of Sin, and the art of the erotic occult ritual in 1982's Black Candles. So welcome back, everybody. It's a special episode this time because we're nearly at our year anniversary. And it was actually Yay. a year ago today that we announced that the Daughters of Darkness podcast was starting. And in a strange little twist of fate, I wasn't aware of this when we planned these episodes on Immoral Tales... Um, it was also a year ago today that I posted that I was really surprised and excited that Symptoms was being restored because we thought it was a, a lost film. So I thought that was a sign from the Euro cult gods. It's also such a nice way to kind of celebrate that we've been doing this for a year. And I mean, partly because Symptoms was my very first liner notes commission. So it kind of brings things full circle in a weird way. In a crazy year. It feels like 10 years. It, it really does. <laughs> it doesn't feel like like a year at all. Um, and we were talking about this recently when we recorded our first commentary because I think when we recorded that, that fell on the anniversary of our first ever conference call about this podcast. So I think the signs are good. <laughs> The science, the universe is telling us something, I think. Yes, which is why I think it makes sense to have a couple of episodes inspired by one of our sort of great loves, which is Pete Toombs and Cathal Toehill's Immoral Tales, European sex and horror movies from 1956 to 1984, which I don't know about you, but it was one of the first books I came across when I was a teenager, that really turned me on to so many things that I am obsessed with today. I mean, Jess Franco, Jean Roland, Baravchik, it, it's all in there. I think we wanted to return to this because we did Nightmare USA last year and we've just come off the Elio Petri series, which was a lot of politics, a lot of giggling as well but a lot of politics it was quite heavy going and we thought because we <laughs> were coming up to our giggling well yeah and we haven't talked about <laughs> bush for a while so we thought that was which due. makes me sad it does so we're gonna have to make up for that with these these series of episodes um the book for me came it came alongside another thing that pete toombs was involved in which was the erotica series which I'm sure I've mentioned on one of the previous episodes or probably once or twice I've mentioned, which was a series of 
sort of spotlights on different directors that come up in the book. So that did form a large part of my Eurocult education. It was so important back then. Um, and I think the book is important because it was the first book that I ever read that actually celebrated European cinema for, for being, you know, for going against logic, for embracing this dream logic. And it and it put in a spirited defence for the fact that not everything has to make sense. And I love that because it's always one of the biggest criticisms of some of these directors that we'll be talking about is, oh, well, if you make two, if you put two and two together, it makes ten. But the point is, it doesn't matter with this cinema. Or it, it almost is a requirement. And that's something that I, I think it would have taken me a lot longer to find out about these films if I hadn't stumbled across their book. I think as well, we don't, people don't appreciate it so much now with the internet, but even 10 years ago, a lot of this stuff was still really hard to come by and oh, hard absolutely. to read about. And so books like this were vital. I think it's probably the most important book in European cinema. Yeah, and me, I, I, don't think we, I don't think we said, but it came out in 1994, which was a time when, I mean as you were saying, even up to 10 years ago, basically from, let's say, 94 to the mid to late 2000s, if you wanted to find a lot of these films, you would need to get a bootleg. So many of them weren't released. I mean, I actually remember the day that The Beast came out, the Barovchik film The Beast came out on special edition DVD. I, I waited in line for the store to open. Well, there was no line. There was just me. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> it's become so romanticized. There were crowds of fans. I know. And in my <laughs> head, in my head, there were other people there, but really there was just me waiting for the store to open so I could buy it. But I heard about it because I read Immoral Tales and I used to have this running list of films that they mentioned that I wanted to try to get a hold of. And I think so many people would have read sort of dismissive reviews of a lot of these films. I mean, just not, not to keep dwelling on Barovchik, but in the Barovchik section, they, they mention a number of critics who were really, really dismissive of him at, at the time that, his films were coming out or at the time that people were first able to see bootlegs of them. And the fact that they celebrate this sort of really wide range of surrealism and sexual content, it just, it made me feel like there's no reason that you shouldn't think about Jean Roland the same time that you're thinking about Bergman. And, and I, I think that it was that such an influence up, on me. Well, it sums up the spirit of Daughters of Darkness in a way, doesn't it? If we were a book, we would it be does. in all tales, I think, because we do try to bridge that gap. And today we're talking, we're not talking about Borovchek today, we're going to talk about Jose Laraz. And just like Sam just said in the Laraz ch uh, chapter, there are contemporary critics who were writing around the same time the book came out who didn't really say very nice things about Laraz either. So I think the importance... No, but of course, I'm sure they've changed their tune now. Well, we'd hope so, because otherwise yes. you can go around and set their, their houses on fire. Which I will happily do. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, 
onto Laraz. Now, I've always been a huge fan of Laraz, um, although one of the films we're going to talk about today, I wasn't particularly very nice. So I'm saying about critics not saying very nice things. I well, well it's okay to change it was your with mind. With my tongue in my cheek, no, but I ha- I did still like the film Black Candles, which is one of the films we're talking about today. But and a lot of I people hate have that to- film. <laughs> I'm going to have to share some of my insights from my original <laughs> review. But I think um, because of Symptoms and then a lot of his earlier films and his old Dark House films and the way that he he sort of brought Gothic in into the contemporary age. He was part of this sort of movement of filmmakers that were working in Britain, even though he was Spanish that took Gothic from the likes of Hammer and refreshed it and made it more contemporary and more transgressive and more sexual. So there was like Pete Walker as well and Norman J. Warren. Um, although Laras was Spanish, he was working with, well, for symptoms, he was working with British crews and he was working in Britain and he lived in Britain for a long time. So he's always been special to me because I don't think, out of all of them, even like Jess Franco or whatever, he just really just doesn't get his due. Um and the fact that symptoms, I mean, it was shown on TV here in the 80s and then it just completely disappeared. And thankfully, somebody recorded that broadcast. So it sort of lived on in bootleg heaven. But it seemed uh, like... And the grungiest looking bootleg, though. Awful. It's Parts really of awful, it are but not hard as bad, to see. Not as bad as Whirlpool, which is that awful oh, time-coded one. <laughs> yeah, so that looks I terrible. I don't know. To me, it's like, it's good to come here today and sort of celebrate. We will be talking about symptoms, but not just symptoms, some of his other work as well. No, and I think he's he's one of those people who is sort of hard for cult fans to get a read on because not all of his films are available, and he sort of jumps all over the place in the sense that, like we mentioned, a lot of these early films were made in England... They Some of them were full English productions, and even when he returned to Spain, it just, they're not out on DVD. Some of them you can't even find bootlegs of, and Symptoms was believed lost. So it's it's just obvious that he still really hasn't gotten his due, though I'm really hoping that the Symptoms release will encourage more people to want to restore and release his other films. Like they're not, they're I not really all masterpieces, do. but they're all interesting. They're all interesting. And some are even hilarious. Some of, yeah, even some of his sort of later ones. Not the Sevilla connection, though. It's nineteen ninety two comedy. If you ever come across a copy of that, just avoid it. It's fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but you know, I just think. I don't know. He's just. I think because of the lack of availability, he's one of those filmmakers that got lost in the cracks, and it's a shame because Absolutely. he did have a lot to say, and he was an auteur in in many ways as well. Even though he was working for these various low budget projection units, and he was sort of doing stuff commercially, you can find these threads that link into his films. These these things that pop up in quite a few of them some of which we'll explore today.
it's unusual for somebody who, which kind of, kind of ties into something we were saying earlier, but somebody who's considered a cult director, a softcore exploitation, the way he got his start was as someone who wrote and illustrated comic books and had wanted to make films for a while, but finally took the plunge because, speaking of auteurs, because he, he got to meet uh, Sternberg in the late 60s and... I guess their their conversation was really inspiring to him. So it's not like he really set out hoping to become part of some horror genre tradition or to make low-budget sexploitation films. He just really wanted to bring his vision to the screen in a way that even if he's, you know, in his later years taking on some assignments, doing some weird comedies, it's still always him and his themes are always present yeah i think the other thing i love about him is that he was nearly 40 or in his 40s when he started so yeah he had a bit of a barver about him because you know but he unlike barver he hadn't come from inside the industry he'd come from he was a comic but he illustrated comic books and then he was a photographer so you know to come into that at 40 is just and then have such a long career as well it's just amazing. It is, and I think it's... And we've we've certainly talked about this before in past episodes, but there is sort of that learned expatriate sense to him because he left Spain because he came from this leftist family. He was vehemently opposed to Franco's fascist government and kind of wandered around Europe for a while, which is where he worked as an artist and a photographer. And I think that sense comes through so strongly in his films, which I love. Oh, definitely. Um, And there are some little leftist politics as well in one of the films we're going to talk about today. And lots lots of very progressive sexual politics. I think he presented homosexuality in this really sort of frank, non judgmental way. And while, especially in terms of lesbian sex scenes, while there are a ton of these in Euro horror and European exploitation, he does it in a much different way, where it doesn't feel exploitative. There's the other thing that I I did want to talk about it later on, but while you're on the subject of sexuality, a lot of his female protagonists are older women that he shows as sexualized. Yes which I love because I love that, that goes so against everything. It goes against the the whole sort of sexploitation code. Um, a lot of his films, like even his earliest films, like Whirlpool, which was 1970, you've got these older sort of should-be matriarch characters who are actually quite dominant sexually and they lead younger characters into sexual corruption. And that was a, something that came up in a lot of his films, which I thought was amazing. Um, when we talk about black candles, like Helga Line, for example, was fifty when she did that film. So and she's amazing in it. Um, she looks amazing. I mean, she was amazing anyway, but she looks amazing in that film. And it was the way that he presented older women. I think sexually is sexually liberated and quite strong and forthright and you know not as these hag characters. You know they were dominant. They were powerful. So he was a filmmaker with a lot to say, 
that often doesn't get picked up. I think people have seen symptoms or vampires, which going back to our first episode, that's kind of where we started and we had a little chat about Laras on, I think it was our second ever episode when we talked about vampires. I think it was. Yeah, so it's like we've gone full circle, which is cool. So should we talk about the first film? I think we should. As we've already mentioned, uh, Symptoms from 1974, which very strangely was selected as an official British entry at the 1974 Cannes Film Festival, where it was which nominated didn't go for down the well with the, Yeah, it didn't go down too well with the rest of the Brits, because it was no, a Spanish and, director. Well, a Spanish director, a horror film, and it was up against Ken Russell's Mahler, which is an absolutely amazing tour de force film. But Symptoms, in comparison, is so quiet and restrained and really unconventional. I mean, certainly comparisons have been made to things like Polanski's Repulsion and Bergman's Persona, both of which were made about 10 years before this. And it reminds me of a movie that we've talked about a few episodes ago, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which was from yeah, 1971. Yeah, definitely got that same vibe. But it's so it's, unusual. It's his masterpiece of definitely. all his films. Um, and I'm quite fortunate that I speak Spanish quite well, so I've seen quite a few of his films, even the ones that can't be found fan-subbed. And of all of them, it, it this is his best, this is his masterpiece. I know a lot of people say that and then they've only seen a few of his films or they compare it to vampires. But it really is. It's a really special film. There's just something about it. Um, a lot of it is to do with the main character, the um, Helen, who's played by Angela Pleasance, and her her performance in this is just fucking amazing. And um, she looks disturbingly like her father, which she does. <laughs> I I love her in this film. She's great, and and she's great in a few other things. But it's very unsettling to see a woman who looks so much like Donald Pleasance in this kind of role but she she's it's almost like she knows and she goes for it she is so good though it's not just that though it's the atmosphere and the way it's filmed and it's got this sort of autumnal misty oh, beautiful. atmosphere it's so beautiful it was so beautiful to see it restored as well because after seeing it for you well, you could tell it was a special film but actually seeing it restored just makes you really appreciate it and there's little bits that I picked up on the restored print I'd never noticed before little things like shadows or reflections and windows and stuff that weren't actually clear on that old print so it was quite a marvel to see what they did with it well and the set design is so rich and there's stuff that, because of the, the quality of that, that taped bootleg, there's there are things that you can't even see, like paintings on a wall or just random things that are, are packed into this house. And it makes for such a richer experience to be able to, to see it restored. So the story's about these two women. So you've got Angela Pleasance, who plays Hel Helen, 
and her friend Anne, who's played by Lorna Hilbron, who was in um, The Creeping Flesh with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Um, she They turn up at this house. They're two friends on holiday. It's Helen's family home. Um, as soon as they get to the house, Helen starts to act a bit weird and this mystery starts to unfold. Helen's apparently had a friend that she used to bring there called Cora. There's this really creepy groundsman called Brady, who's played by the wonderful Peter Vaughan, who just creeps around. He's fantastic Um, in this. He's so good in this. Hello. Well, I thought I was. I didn't expect to see anyone. Seen you here before? My name's Brady. I work here. Don't suppose Miss Ramsey told you? As a matter of fact, she did. Did she know? Usually she pretends I don't exist. Nonsense, Mr. Brady. She's told me all about you. She couldn't have done. She doesn't know anything about me. Nobody does. No more than I know about her yet. Nor you, for that matter. I think he's also another example of someone making an older character sexualized like the way that he's presented in the dialogue is this groundskeeper who lusts after helen and And he's a bit of a lady chatley's lover type isn't he just the older years he is (laughs) but he's older like you would assume that another director probably would have cast like a young hot gardener sort of a like a joe d'alessandro type but no (laughs) Well, I'm glad they didn't. Oh, me too. He's just so good in it. Um, So this mystery comes about Helen. And what I love about this is you don't really know why Helen and Anne are friends. You've got this insinuated sort of lesbian undercurrent that it's probably more to do with Helen than Anne, but they don't really explain it. And it's all really ambiguous. And you don't know why why Brady still works there even though Helen hates him and you there's talk in the village about this woman Cora and that's insinuated that she could have been in a lesbian relationship with Helen and there's this other sort of talk that Helen's been ill but you don't really get to know what that's about and I love that it's not fed to you I love that aspect of it I just think it makes it more creepy absolutely and it doesn't it's really subtle. It's it's not obvious in a way that makes you feel like these are plot holes. He he gives you just enough to sort of string you along and force you to imagine all these different possibilities so that when the conclusion finally hits or at least when the third act finally hits, I the first time I saw it, I definitely didn't see it coming. And every time I rewatch it, it really sneaks up on you. And I think it's because he doesn't spoon feed any plot details. And it has got this sort of air as well of a supernatural, even though it's not this sort of, it really does date back to that traditional gothic of explained supernatural. But it starts off a bit like, you can imagine it being a ghost story because you've got these little things in the shadows and reflections and stuff. And it is really genuinely creepy. I saw it when I was younger and there's a scene in it when these feet come down a, a stairwell 
that scared the fucking shit out of me. And it's still effective, like even watching it now, it's oh, a really totally. effective scene. Um, because you just don't expect it and you don't know what's going on. And like you said, it's not really plot holes because you don't need to know. I like speculating, like even when I rewatch it, you think, you know, why are Anne and Helen friends? They just seem so mismatched. Yeah, you know? how did they get here? Why? And it's not even how did they get here. It's more what what did Helen do? Because she's so strange and lives in her own mental universe. What did she do to get somebody as sort of conventional as Anne to be her, not only to be her friend, but to agree to come away with her for several days? And there's this obvious sexual jealousy there as well. Definitely. Which you wonder if something happened between them at an earlier time. I mean, Anne's into men. She's got a boyfriend that pops up a couple of times and he's mentioned but there's this really strange chemistry between those two and a lot of the scenes are just them in this house alone um and scenes when they're not even talking and you've just got this chemistry going on between the two where you're thinking what you know what's their deal if they been sleeping together or you know how how long have they known each other it's it's just all a bit strange and a bit eerie Helen Why have you been so long? I came as soon as I could. Avoid that man. I don't like being spied on, especially by a friend. I wasn't spying. I was merely trying to protect you, which is different. You must never leave me again. Yeah, the eeriness really reminds me of... So, Loraz talked about Henry James as being an influence on him, and it does remind me a lot of Turn of the Screw, and in particular the 1961 adaptation The Innocence, which also takes place in this country house out in the middle of nowhere. It's this woman who's sort of hearing things, and there's a supernatural element, but you don't know if it's actually supernatural or if it's psychological instead and I think what that film does so well this film treads similar ground without feeling in any way repetitive or derivative it kind of not that the stories are similar in any way but I've I've always seen an affiliation with this and Norman J Warren's Prey which was 1977, that sort of weird at cannibal aliens, but you've got this lesbian couple in this manor house as well, and it's got a similar yeah. atmosphere. So it makes me think of that. But the the dark house was like something that turns up in nearly all of Laraz's so films. Yeah. There's just it's it's in well, let's see, it's in Whirlpool, Deviation. He did this film the year before Symptoms called La Muerta in Sieta which has got the lovely Rizal Baniri in a tiny, tiny oh. role, um, which is about this, this couple that live in India on this, this isolated, I think it's like a vineyard or a plantation or something. Um, and there are scenes in that that turn up in symptoms. There's a, a stabbing in a basement that, that becomes a stabbing in an attic. 
um, with a similar atmosphere, but it's nearly it's not nearly as good, halfway as good as symptoms. Really, it isn't. Um, but then you've got Emma Puerta, Escuras, all the films that came out, vampires. You've got the two women that are in the house. You've got the house that vanished, which is a house where two people see like a, a serial killing. It's all houses, yeah, all of them, all throughout. And I think houses, but the emphasis is not just on the interior of the house. It's also on the countryside. And I think... We were so good with atmosphere. Yeah. Even his later films, which were, were just really not as good. But he did a few slashes at the end of his career, like Rest in Pieces and Edge of the Axe and Deadly Manor, which was 1990. Um, and he still brought these same atmospheric nature-based elements and these isolated locations into them he was so good with filming nature and building up even his his crappiest films have got some amazing atmosphere to be found yeah he definitely has a way of making it and i think this is why the comparison to let's scare jessica to death is so such a parallel he has a way of making nature not only unpredictable in the sense that sometimes it's very pastoral and kind of comforting and other times it's eerie and even sinister and this film has a lot of uh, and one of the things that I think makes it such a masterpiece is the use of sound is absolutely incredible and there are a lot of very eerie nature sounds included into the soundtrack that are just they're so effective no matter how many times you watch the movie and bodies always end up in lakes <laughs> yeah <laughs> which they do here and they do <laughs> whirlpool i think does whirlpool start with a body in a lake or it I starts it with a guy on the lake um so you've got this beautiful countryside but it's where bodies get dumped or people get stabbed in forests or you know You've got this wild sort of untamed primal atmosphere that he brings into it. Um, Even though you've got these sort of, he uses these manor houses or these sort of Baroque, quite impressive buildings, but they're always stuck in this sort of primal, dangerous place out in the middle of nowhere. Um, He uses that in vampires as well a lot, I think, the same sort of atmosphere. Absolutely. And there it's sort of more closely connected to the two female protagonists who are vampires and they're they're made to seem more like wild animals than they are civilized humans in a way that not a lot of other directors do with vampire characters. We talked about that on that episode, didn't we? Because it's one of the most yes. violent vampire films of the era, definitely. Um and that primal violence comes out in symptoms. I don't want to give too much away, really. Because no. I'm sort of, you know, I know a lot of people still aren't going to have seen it. So I don't really want it. Even though Moral Tale says, oh, well, it's obvious from the beginning. I, I never thought it was, I don't to think be it was, no. So there are sort of these psychosexual elements that come up in a lot of his work. But uh, he uses them so subtly here. Um, in some of his earlier work, they're a bit more full on and you get these crazy sort of serial killers. But with this one, it's so subtle that you don't really see it. I didn't see it. No, it's 
it's so well used and I think it's because a lot of those other films take care to tell you to beat you over the head with the fact that this character is insane but here the scale is it, it, it's so much more nebulous and sometimes it seems like Anne is even more unhinged than Helen and so it, it kind of plays with that relationship and with people wandering at nighttime and sleepwalking and having nightmares and it kind of reminds me of what Hammer were trying to do a little bit in the same period where they they sort of turned away from these really colorful gothic horror films and made a few psychological horror films like Demons in the Night or Demons in the Mind, Fear in the Night, and my personal favorite, which we will have to talk about at some point in one of these episodes, straight on till morning. Which I think did we mention that though on when we talked about Paul Selly with the recordings? I love that film. It's and there's a similar character favorites. in that actually, with this sort of very fragile woman. Yes, they are so similar. And I think they equally have these plots that give you just enough information, but leave you with so many more questions than answers in such a wonderful way. Yeah, we should. We need to do an episode on sort of uncelebrated Hammer because that period was quite interesting for them. And it gets I so ignored. It does because it's not Christopher Lee in a vampire cape. I no think. heaving bosoms. <laughs> <laughs> So it does, I mean, Emma Puerta's Oscura was another film that he did, um, which has got this similar sort of thing. And he did he did sort of play with these oppressed sexualities or women that oppress their sexuality and um, female madness is another one of his common themes. And I think Emma Puerta's Oscura's came out after Symptoms or just before. It was around the same time. Yeah, I think um, it's the same year, but was made just before because it's shot in England, but I think it might be or partially shot in England and partially shot in Spain. It's not, again, it's not as good as symptoms, but it is a really good film. I'd like to see that one restored. Definitely. Because that's just out in a really shocking bootleg copy. It would be great was... to see a box set of Whirlpool deviation and Emma. I think that would be a really nice kind of, Something like what Arrow has been doing with those Jalo, <laughs> been those asking, obscure We're always Jalos. asking for things on Daughters of Darkness. Hey, and we're still waiting. Although sometimes we have mentioned them and they've appeared. So I mean, since it's worth, since we did it's worth Petri, mentioning. <laughs> yeah, property is no longer a theft. has been announced on a restored version, so you never know. Exactly. So, Universe, I want a box <laughs> set with Whirlpool Deviation and <laughs> Emma Puertas Oscuras. And the house that vanished. Okay, so that too. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go on to the next film, I mean, then he made it. Uh, the other thing is, the other um, main point about symptoms is he, the Brian Smedley Aston. Oh, yeah. He was the editor on this. And the editing is brilliant. Love, I love him in interviews. He's just such a posh little chap, but you think he. He was the editor on, on performance and quite a few other films. And, and the he, shuttered room, speaking of underrated 
psychological British horror. And Blue Sunshine as well, wasn't he? Was he the editor on Blue yes, Sunshine? And, yeah, just when you look at him, it He's it just really... so unassuming <laughs> yes. and polite and lovely. He's just really nice in interviews. But he then went on and produced Vampires with with Laraz. Yeah, they're directing I think, it. <laughs> did they just did they just do these two films together? They did. He he did Deadly Manor, the nineteen ninety oh, right, slasher right. with him as well. Um but then after he did Vampires, he, I think he then went on to produce The House on Straw Hill with Udo Kier and Linda oh, Hayden. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he I mean He's an interesting character, or Brian. And he's always got a little cool ignored. jacket on. He is, and <laughs> smiling, just so nice. Um, so they met on this film because he was the editor, and then that's how Vampires was born. But even more so cool. than Vampires, his his editing here is absolutely... I mean, I think a lot of the time it's really easy to overlook the work of editors because most people's brains just don't pick out you know where does this scene end where does the next scene begin but it's really really noticeable with symptoms and like even within the first five minutes of the film there's this great scene where this storm is rolling in and Helen and Anne are in the kitchen and Helen is talking about how she recently was recovering from her unknown illness or unmentioned illness in Switzerland and there was a storm and the sky got so black she thought the world was going to end. And then before she even finishes the word, the scene cuts and they're suddenly in a different room of the house, continuing the conversation in a very different tone. And it's just like the film is filled with scenes like with cuts like that. And they're brilliant. It is really good. Um so following this, after he made Vampires, he, he'd made some really weird films in Spain. And before we go on to the next one. None of um, which I have seen. <laughs> right, well, he did He did a film in 1977 called Al Fin de la Innocencia, which I've never seen and can't get hold of. But then after that, he made a 1977 film called Luto Riguroso, which is this weird gothic thriller that isn't actually a horror film or anything like Symptoms, but it's about this strange family again in a dark house and a, and of course. a, a promiscuous daughter. And it's all a bit weird and everybody in this house is a bit weird and you just wonder what all their relationships are. Um, so it's an interesting film. But then he made, um, I think in 1977 again, he made El Miron with Alexandra Bastedo, who's in The Blood Splattered Bride, um, ah. which is about wife swapping. It's, <laughs> it's is about it a comedy? This... No, I'm laughing because it is quite awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's about this, this sort of mustachioed, boring husband who gets off on his wife getting off with younger men. And so he encourages it and she's not really into it, but he sort of gets her to do it and then spies on them. Um, like you do. Yeah, it's a bit <laughs> of a strange one. But again, she's like an old, she's not that old, but she's an older woman. She's supposed to be a mature housewife type and she's seen with young students and stuff. It's not really sexploitation either. I think, I'm, I may be talking bollocks now, but it could have been made for Spanish television. It has that feel about it, a bit soap opery, but it, again, it's got these little 
transgressive little things in there. It's worth watching, but it's it's not great. It's, it's not one of his best at all. Well, it's but interesting then, that it has that threesome theme because that's... Yeah, he loved the threesome theme. And uh, can you blame him? <laughs> which which brings us to his next film, which yes. is the film we will be talking about, which, which is... <laughs> which I'm so excited to be talking about. <laughs> I know, we've been a bit downbeat with symptoms, but it is a, like a very serious film. Uh, the next two films aren't really that serious, so mm. <laughs> you can pick it up. So it's quite funny as well because we just did the commentary. I don't want to sign up with name checking, but we just did the commentary for Barofchek's Story of Sin. And during the prep for that, we were also prepping for this podcast. And so I was going around telling people I was doing a commentary for The Coming of Sin. <laughs> Which is a lie. <laughs> Which is well, the story of sin, the coming of sin. It's all of the sins. Although They're quite I'm, different. I'm hoping that in some way you've gotten the universe's attention and we will get to do a commentary track for The Coming of Sin. Because Which that's another love. one that needs to be restored. Yes, I would love it that really too. It does. <laughs> so the I love the alternate title as well, which was the the title that I first knew it as. Me too. I think it might have been the UK title as The Violation of the Bitch. <laughs> I th- well, I think that was just the standard English language title, which I don't know who came up with that because the, the Spanish is La Visita del Vicio, which is... The the com- the coming of sin is is basically the right translation. It's it's the arrival of vice essentially. So I don't know who lo- who saw this film and thought, okay, I I know what we're gonna call it in English. We did have another alternate title, which was called so- Sodomia. Oh yeah, and there's like- there's also there's also <laughs> there's a version of the film with hardcore inserts that. Laraz had nothing to do with, and it's called Sex Maniac. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so funny, but <laughs> it is. Well, I talk going back to the Eurotica series because there was actually an episode, and I think it got ported onto the Mondo release of Symptoms, it maybe. Did. Yes, from yes, um, Tembridge, Barcelona to Tembridge, Wales, which was the whole episode dedicated to Laraz. And in that episode, the scene from this where a woman's inside a horse um, with another horse mounting it, which we'll talk about in more depth in a minute, was in that program, which I saw in the late 90s. I think it was either the late 90s or the early 2000s it was shown. But I was like, what is this film? I need to find this. (laughs) Yeah, that visual is unforgettable. But I think that, (laughs) that, so that episode which is quoted in Immoral Tales. Uh, Laraz talks about how the horse was the only professional actor on the set because <laughs> apparently he got all these newcomers. And the, the horse actually... <laughs> they're not. But the horse had been in all these westerns and had been ridden by like <laughs> Robert Mitchum and Yul Brenner. <laughs> so the, the fact that the horse literally is the most experienced actor and he wasn't just being an asshole is kind of amazing (laughs) 
So the story is about this woman called Lorna, who's this affluent, affluent woman who lives on a ranch in the middle of nowhere like they always do. It was played by uh, <laughs> Patricia Granada. I don't know why I'm going to read these names out of these actors because they weren't really in anything. She no. Every time I see this, though, I always mistake her for someone who was in a Jess Franco film, and I'm always drawn into looking her up. And then because my, my my memory just goes, and I'm like, no, that's not who I was thinking of. She was actually not in very much. No, um, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> she she looks a lot like her, and the first time I saw this, I confused her. Like I assumed that she had either been in some Franco films or that she had been in some Jalo films because she looks a little bit like any number of sort of lower tier Jalo actresses who just sort of appear in side roles. But no, yeah, but no, no, it's not. So she's there on a ranch painting away and. Some friends of her ripping drop off. off Goya, <laughs> yeah, ripping off Goya. Um, she's there, and her friends drop off her new servant Triana, who's played by Lydia <laughs> Zauzo, who again wasn't in anything. Uh, like you do, they just sort of palm off this gypsy girl, saying, "Well, she has a bit of trouble at night. She has these nightmares." So, um, <laughs> the. The in the, but in the is... most racist, in the most racist way possible, it's like we have this fucking savage. Will you please take her off our hands without even asking if Triana wants to stay with Lorna? Or... No, it, they just it's... sort of they just sort of drop her off and go bye. <laughs> <laughs> She's your problem now. I think the thing that doesn't help this film because it's a beautiful film and it has got a lot of atmosphere and it has got a lot of sexual it's chemistry gorgeous. is the fucking dubbing is terrible the, oh the my lines, god it it's... just turns it into this unintentional <laughs> comedy because the lines are so ridiculous every line is literally every line is funny i mean the <laughs> even the the opening scene that you're just describing where they show up lorna's friends show up with triana and she leaves her husband in the car <laughs> And they sit down and have a drink and she just sort of tries to pawn her off. The dialogue is so ridiculous that I've never been able to find the Spanish dub of this. No, I'd love to watch this in Spanish and actually see (laughs) if that's what they're supposed to be saying because I bet it's not. I just can't believe that that somebody wrote that intentionally. It's so quiet and peaceful here. Mm-hmm. That's why I built this house. But don't you ever feel lonely? Mm. I've learned to enjoy my own company. I'd be afraid to live out here in my own. What's there to be afraid of? The things they say on the news. I wouldn't know about that. I never listened to the news. Uh, Lorna, dear, uh, Malcolm is being sent to England. The most we'd be away a month or two. Which means we have to do something about Triana. Malcolm believes that taking her would be too much of a problem. He has a lot of business to take care of and will be moving around all the time. Uh, yes, I'm sure. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is, would you be kind enough to take care of her? I mean, until we get back, darling. She doesn't have any family, so that your child grew up in an orphanage. Naturally, I'd continue to pay her salary. Oh, don't be silly. Well, she enjoys staying here. That's the important thing. I think she's bound to. Ah, something else. She's a marvelous cook. 
And she'll be able to help around the house. What more could I want? It sounds perfect. It won't be a problem, Sally. Oh, you don't know how much I appreciate this. You're an angel. I'll miss her. She's like one of the family. So something I noticed throughout the film is that a lot of their word order, so even in the English dubbing, a lot of their word order is very strange. Like somebody who wrote the English dub script was not a native English speaker. <laughs> and I think that that might be part of the problem, which which is a similar problem with a later film of his that we're going to talk about. Well, I think as well, you've got the the Triana is dubbed by an actress who's talking in this really <laughs> false Charles Dickens type Cockney accent, which is supposed to like denote that she's it's working awful. class. <laughs> it's really <laughs> awful. Um, you know, it's all like call blimey, governor. Well, it's not. It's not quite uh, Dick Van Dyke, but it is just silly. You just think it's, she's supposed to be a gypsy. Bad. There's all these flamenco scenes and she's talking like she just came out of Hackney. It's like, you know, <laughs> what the hell? Um, it, that doesn't and, help and matters. They... <laughs> well, they try to make it seem sometimes like she has a different kind of accent like her, well, because i think the, the person dub, the doing the accent <laughs> couldn't actually do the accent they're probably like can we have a common accent please can you do a common accent so they just did an amalgamum of some weird accent oh, that they thought sounded common and it's, it's terrible um not as terrible it's, as someone in black candles who we'll talk about later but uh yeah, oh, that God. really doesn't help when you. So you, she comes into the house, and you've got these two women alone, and they and they embark on a sexual affair at some point, um, and you've got all this chemistry between them, which is undermined by the fact that every time Triana opens her mouth, she just sounds. <laughs> it just sounds awful. It's like a terrible well, and... <laughs> dubbed porn. It, it's just it's just it's really undermined bad. by the fact that. The dialogue, the dubbed dialogue changes all of Lorna's sentences, which if if you take what she means, most of the time it's reasonable, but it changes all of her sentences around to make her sound like the biggest fucking asshole. No, she just says <laughs> really stupid way, things. She either says really stupid things or really insensitive things. Like she tries to make, so one, one of the big things that, that she's warned about is that Triana has these nightmares every night. And so within, I don't know, 30 seconds of being alone with Triana, who's now forced to and live in some to get stranger's to, house. And trying to get her to play the yeah. guitar. <laughs> What's that she tries, she tries to get her to play the guitar and she tries to get her to tell her about her nightmares. Like they're having a conversation about the weather. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's so rude. And Triana's nightmares are about this naked man on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, Which you know, is just majestic. <laughs> and Lorna surmises that she's just scared of men. But it's the way she sort of says Which it and then they, says... They... <laughs> she sort I'm of sorry, says they, that. they have this conversation. No, they have this conversation later on where, where she sits her down and tells her in no uncertain terms, the reason you're afraid of horses is because you're actually afraid of the opposite sex objectifying you. And, and Triana looks at her like, really? 
I'd love to be able to paint the things I think about, like my nightmares. Can't you get that out of your head? If I thought you'd read them, I'd lend you some books, Triana, that would give you a chance to understand your nightmare. After all, it's only a dream. Your fear of horses is based on your fear of being sexually exploited by the opposite sex. To you, man is the worst kind of animal. On the other hand, not all men are the same. It's not sex I'm frightened of. You're not afraid of being exploited? No. Of violence? It's what the fortune teller read in my hand. I'm absolutely sure if you let that evil man do what he likes, something terrible will happen. Now, you listen to me. I don't have time for that superstitious bullshit, so forget it. Otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, you can go elsewhere. <laughs> well, she comes out with a few of these things. We'll go back to another so line later on, but these they're quite rude. <laughs> They're, they're so rude. It's this sort of like armchair psychology, I I know better than you kind of argument that is just inadvertently hilarious. <laughs> but she then says, well, you know, there's two, two rules in this house. You keep a clean room and you bathe <laughs> regularly, which sort of suggests that she's dirty. And then Lorna goes off into the other room, says, I'm going to bed now, even though it's like broad daylight strips off and starts putting body lotion on her body and making these orgasmic noises, rubbing her thighs. And you think, here which, we go. <laughs> well, which is a theme in a way more subdued way, is a similar theme that's in Symptoms, is nightmares that sound like someone masturbating. I know we didn't Except get to that because we were being so serious. And I knew if I, I mentioned it, we'd start laughing and it would derail it. But there is that scene in Symptoms where she's locked in a bedroom and there's all this, oh, oh, going on. But like and, uh, ridiculously loud moaning. <laughs> moaning. <laughs> yeah. But here it is because she's masturbating. And and then poor old Triana. So she's got her, her new landlady doing that in the next room. And then these weird dreams of a naked man on a horseback. And this is, he actually turns up as a real figure, Chico. Uh, he's played by Rafael Mercado. Um, but he, for the first like, 45 minutes of this film, he's romping around with his knob out. It's just glorious. And apparently, <laughs> apparently complained to Laraz that riding the horse naked made his balls hurt. <laughs> Which it would do, but they actually even have this conversation when they meet him. I'm jumping ahead now. Yes, which I love. With the rude landlady who starts talking about him riding bareback. <laughs> so and, uh, and she... asks asks if it's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> so she um, so she she tries with Triana again to sort of get to the bottom of her, her nightmares, and then this guy actually just turns up romping around the front of the house, trampling all the flowers, just completely fucking naked. And I love the fact <laughs> that, um, you know, Sorry. Triana's, like, terrified. And um, Lorna's just, like, you know, she goes out with a gun, tries to shoot him, and Lorna comes out and's like, how dare you, leave him alone. Like, it's like the, an everyday occurrence to see some naked man steaming around your flower bed. <laughs> <laughs> and then just add, and this comes up all the way through that every time Triana's sort of you know annoyed about this Chico 
She Lorna sort no, of tells her even, off. It's not even that she's annoyed. <laughs> it's not even that she's annoyed. He legitimately attempts to rape her at one point, and Lorna acts like Triana yeah, is just being like, Don't ridiculous. be so rude. Why are you being so impolite? To our guests. It's and then invites them in the house. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the dubbing and something's lost in translation because it is just fucking ridiculous. Um she sort of says, you know, you don't just you don't just shoot at him, you know, what's the matter of with you? And then they go in and have this weird conversation. She says, you know, I have these dreams about him and and Lorna palms it off and says, Oh, well, he's probably it's a primitive a courting ritual you know he's like a gypsy like you this is what you type of people do um you know and and so triana informs her that if she has sex with someone it, that she'll die and it's written on her hand or with a man or with this man from her dreams and and it's written on her hand apparently so that's basically the plot um <laughs> And then, and then you've got this uh, other weird threesome plot where Lorna keeps mentioning what a good couple they would make, despite the fact that Triana keeps telling her that if they get together, someone will die. She just totally ignores that and keeps and going, oh. Not not only telling her that, but telling her this guy has stalked me across the countryside and the Chico himself admits that he lives in a shack by the river. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, doesn't wear any fucking clothes. I know, he's full and so knob like she... and everything. It's just like... <laughs> Although I, I noticed that for the first probably half an hour of the film, they really go out of their way not to have any dick shots. It's like he conveniently turns to the side just as the camera like, It's when he gets on and him. off that horse, though. You just can't miss it. <laughs> And lots of like with him riding away with his <laughs> with everything underneath <laughs> as he bobs up and down on it. Poor you guy. you have to you have to wonder what Mikado thought when he saw this script. Like, okay, so I'm going to be playing this guy who spends seventy five percent of the film riding a horse naked. That's for no good reason. To me. You know, he doesn't. He's he's sort of stalking this woman. And instead of being discreet about it, he just rides around naked, you know, so everyone can see him naked. It's just completely bizarre. Um, and then Lorna's like, oh, he's a beautiful looking guy. He didn't give me any bad vibes because he just goes and talks. Oh, you'd make... <laughs> she says something like the outcome was disappointing, though, because he just rode off because she was hoping to get her end away. Um there's also this Which thing she with does this, this Spanish gypsies that comes up a couple <laughs> of times, which I made a note of the flamenco scenes. Because <laughs> oh, um, I was married to a Spaniard in my 20s and he was quite into flamenco because he was from Sevilla. And there's this whole scene that quite I find quite traumatic because it brings back those days. <laughs> Which is amazing. I'm five sorry. Minutes, there's a bunch of people just sat on a stage doing that flamenco clapping which he liked to do when he'd had a few wines which was every day because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I don't even know I brought this up but I found those scenes uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> 
I have it so in my notes. So you're saying that <laughs> you're saying that he didn't ride around naked? On no, the he didn't. Thank God, because <laughs> I think he might have been arrested. You know. <laughs> but I have got mentioned I was married to a Spaniard, and he did used to sit around clapping. So yeah, that brought which, back some which memories. Is <laughs> And there's no point for it to be there, apart from the fact that it's establishing that they're in Spain and they're gypsies. Um, they have got like a big gypsy culture in Spain and I don't, but but with the racist comments, it didn't quite, I'm not sure what they were going for. There's quite a I'm few wondering sort of if put that's, downs to the gypsies. I'm wondering <laughs> if it's in the dubbing. I think it must be in the dubbing. Because you think you've got this prophecy of this man, you've got these dreams, and it looks beautiful as well. And some of the scenes, and oh, it's, it's got gorgeous. it's set in this sort of Spanish countryside as well, with these big, um, on this big plantation and this ranch and everything. So you've got all that going on, and you've got these gypsy scenes, and you've got this mystical element that there's this prophecy that this girl will die if she has sex with this man. So I think some of the stupidity is definitely in that dubbing because there's actually a good story in there underneath all the ridiculous accents and the stupid lines. Like almost every line no, in this film made me laugh. It's, oh my God. We, we were going back and forth earlier and I just, it's it's sort of to the point right now where I almost can't even talk because I was just having such a bad laughing fit. And that's what happened earlier when we were talking about it, is the dialogue is just so ridiculous. And well, it's it's not even from Triana. <laughs> it's all from Lorna. Like it's Lorna, all Lorna says the most terrible things. So there's a storm in it. Uh, talking of symptoms, there's a storm in this one. And Triana admits she's not just scared of horses, she's scared of lightning. And she's talking about this friend that she had that was struck by lightning and killed. And apparently all of his all of his body was black apart from his teeth. And Lorna chips in with, I knew somebody who died in a car crash. And then she just sort of puts in as an aside, but he wasn't my friend, he was my husband, but it's okay because we were like working out anyway. She just drops that in like, you know, fancy a cup of tea. <laughs> and that's how it's, she says everything. It's really bizarre. So they end up in a like relationship. The... <laughs> after this after these after so much sharing um and you've got quite a few lesbian scenes in this um between yeah those but their their conversations are ridiculous like lorna says things to her like you might not like men but i do i, know, I need to spend time why. with a man yeah <laughs> <laughs> i know you wonder why triana's with her because she's just hideous the stuff she comes out with and embarrassing um so Triana then goes out to to the countryside and almost gets raped by Chico. Um and she comes back to the house, she escapes, and he then follows her and has put on clothes at this point. And this bit always <laughs> baffles me. Because for forty five minutes you've seen him naked and they've seen him naked, and when he comes up to the house He's wearing clothes. Her. He's wearing clothes. You're like, why bother? You know. <laughs> so Lorna invites him in for a drink and says, you know, it's all in your mind. And the least you could do is thank him for returning your necklace that he ripped off you 
while he was trying to, you know, force himself up your backside. Good evening. This is yours. I found it down by the river. No, ma'am, don't let him into the house. Stop being silly and rude. That's no way to treat someone who comes to the door. The least you could do is thank him for bringing back your necklace. Please come in. No, don't. He's dangerous. Control yourself, for God's sake. I won't have you acting like this in my presence. I'll leave if you leave. Anna. If you can't control yourself, you can go to bed. Please, come in. <laughs> it's just really bizarre. Um, it's... It's... Uh, yeah, her behavior... I, I really need to see the, <laughs> the, the original Spanish language version of this because her behavior is just insane. I mean, although you, you kind of have to wonder if that's just in the script because... There's that amazing scene where they're all sitting around drinking and everyone starts to sweat for no apparent reason. <laughs> they're sort of, they're, they're not saying anything. They're just drinking alcohol, sweating, and there's no other, like, there aren't other scenes in the movie where it's implied that it's really hot out. It's just this one scene. <laughs> they're sweating, staring at each other, and listening to this Spanish guitar music and Lorna gets so fucking drunk that she doesn't know what's happening and they have to take her clothes off. It is the weirdest scene. And it's quite sinister as well because you start it's wondering very if it's sinister. a setup and what's going on. Well, it, seem, it seems like one because they, they start to have sex with her, but the scene cuts away so that you don't know what happened. It's very strange. It is really strange. And the next day they go off to another gypsy party where they're all sat around clapping. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and Lorna makes more rude comments to, to her girlfriend about, you know, needing a man and goes off with Chico in this quite strange sex scene where it looks like he's raping her for half of it. And... And she she makes these facial expressions and these sounds <laughs> like she's being murdered. <laughs> and then at that when they're finished, she pulls his hair and makes this face like she's angry with him. And I just genuinely don't understand what was going on in that scene. <laughs> I think that sums it up. I just don't believe that it wasn't supposed to make sense in any way, though, because it's so beautifully yeah. shot. And you've got this scene that we mentioned earlier with this dream where Triana's inside this model horse. It's really difficult to describe, but she's it's, in it so with her backside hanging out and you've got Chico on a horse trying to mount her. So basically she'd be raped by a horse. Um, I don't but know it's if really... rape is the right word. I don't know. Cause she's sort of in there, but she's got this look on her face like she's a bit worried and doesn't well, know I would be a whether bit they too. know she's in there or not. <laughs> I don't know. Which I was saying it's a beautiful to... scene and then <laughs> she might get raped by a horse, but it's a beautiful but scene. But it, it is it a beautiful is really scene. It's really artistic. It looks like a painting. It's um, And you have to kind of wonder where he got the idea. I mean, it makes me think of the brazen bull, which... <laughs> was this medieval torture device where basically a metal, a hollow life-size metal bull was made by a welder and it opened so that you could put a person inside of it much like the, and I think this is why it's hard for us to explain the horse here because it's, 
it's this life-size metal horse that is hollow and although it's not really clear how she got into the horse like there aren't any obvious openings but so with the brazen bull you would put someone inside the bull and then you would light a fire underneath the bull so that it the metal would heat up and the person would be roasted alive only you and I'm, would yes, know such a thing i know <laughs> <laughs> But I, I'm wondering if he maybe there there are all these really beautiful, uh, well, beautiful to me, possibly not beautiful to everyone, uh, medieval torture illustrations, and they they show these sort of depictions of a person inside the brazen bull, and I'm wondering if that's maybe what influenced him with this scene. Because it's, it's so unusual. It is really unusual. And that was iconic. the scene that I saw on the erotica program and i was like what is that i need to see that film i've never seen anything it's hard like to forget all since so it's it's criminal about the dubbing really i don't think we should give away the ending because the ending's quite we should not give away it has the got ending. a bit of a class thing a bit of a fuck you to the aristocracy which i like um, and there are these little lines in it as well because she's a bit snobby and they're treated as commoners, but there's a bit of a rebellious twist. Snobby and racist. Yeah, snobby and racist and just Well, weird. and she has all these she fucking... Fuck she has everybody. all these lines. She wants to fuck everybody, but she is constantly... If they're having just normal conversations, she's constantly putting someone down for not knowing what a painting is like she gives this really long explanation for a painting of Salome holding the head of John the Baptist and she gives this really really obnoxious lecture to Triana about why Triana should learn to read and it's not in any way helpful it's just bitchy <laughs> so... well, she she paints them at one point. She gets them to wear these ridiculous costumes. It's hilarious. And, <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to paint you. You just sit with the guy who just tried to rape you. I'm going to do a painting and immortalize sit, it. Sit semi, sit semi nude with this guy who tried to rape you and, and look been comfortable. Stalking you. Yeah. And she says something as well about if you've got money, you can do anything. She is a bit of a bitch as well. Yeah. Maybe that's not where the violation character. of the bitch comes in. Because she is, she's not a very nice person. No, and I think it's interesting, but around, so I don't, I don't think we, I don't remember if we mentioned, but this came out in 78. And around that time, there were a bunch of films made set in very sort of surreal weirdly plotted films set in manor houses like black moon and rivette's merry-go-round this other film that's hard to get a hold of called surreal estate fassbender's chinese roulette and they almost all of them have these bitchy or domineering female characters and there are weird class issues so i'm kind of wondering if it was just coincidence that i don't know because a lot of Laras's, is similar well a lot of Laras's earlier films have got these like older yeah. like whirlpool and um the house that vanished they've got these like older characters these aunts who are a bit um, they've usually got some sexual thing going on with one of their nephews or their sons or whatever. But they're like these quite domineering, rich, 
not very nice women that seem to pop up in a lot of his films. Um, and we see another one of those characters in the next film, actually. And she is delightful. <laughs> so we won't ruin <laughs> the ending of this one. Let's let's go on to the next film. <laughs> 1982's Black Candles. Or... Um, <laughs> Sex rights of the devil, which is the literal translation. Or if you've got the code red Blu-ray, the print, the title on the print is Hot Fantasies. <laughs> is, it, is it really Hot Fantasies? Oh um, my god! Yeah. Um, what's <laughs> Laras didn't really like this film very much. He's on record, and which it's is in a shame. The Immoral Tales book that he. He didn't like the actors in this and he was like, what am I supposed to do with them? You know, they're not very good actors. I'll just have them fuck. So it's basically a satanic sexploitation film. Um, and it's wonderful. <laughs> I didn't I, so think I, so when I, I first reviewed it. And I don't understand why so many... So I've I've read a lot of reviews from people who hate this movie <laughs> and I, I just don't get it. I mean, if you're comparing it to symptoms, of course, it's it's a totally different thing. And it's ridiculous, but, but it's so much fun. It is ridiculous. I think my initial problem was it didn't have enough satanic stuff in it because it is mainly a sexploitation film. But somebody fucks a goat. Yeah, somebody fucks in a, a goat. satanic ritual. <laughs> Who it's else been, does that? It's been it's been kind to me because in the four years I think I wrote the review four <laughs> years ago, it's been one of the highest ranking for my old blog. It still gets traffic now. It's a terribly written review if anyone looks it up. But uh... it's funny though, <laughs> I'm going to read part of it. So I oh, wrote <laughs> just and I I seem to have added like a phase of writing angry reviews at that time. So I think I mentioned one of my old reviews for the children as well. One of our oh my USA. god, which is so funny. <laughs> so I, I wrote <laughs> black candles or its more fitting title, the sexual rights of the devil, really has to be seen to be believed. The film is, in essence, an 82-minute-long softcore sexploitation film masquerading under the guise of a satanic horror which features more 80s bush and boob than you can shake a stick at and a scene in which a naked woman fornicates with a goat. Yes, you did read that <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then later on, I tried to summarise the plot, which is just ridiculous. Um and then I went into this little rant. A note on the sexual scenes, and there are many, as scene after scene launches into yet another woman stripping off and mounting some leering bloke while she starts screaming and moaning in ecstasy in fake porn overdub style. It all gets a bit wearing and slightly <laughs> sad. <laughs> Laras has made some much better films and is on record stating his own dislike for this movie. It's a shame he got caught up in this mess of a film which uses sex to pad out most, most of the running time instead of focusing on plot or character development. As well as the sex scenes, man on girl, girl on girl, masturbation, voyeurism, buggery and orgies, there are a few shock factors added in, one in which comes in the form of some bestiality with a horny goat 
that gets fleffed by a crow-faced hag in the barn before he comes <laughs> on to do his many shot. And he actually lasts a lot longer than some of the human males amongst this ramshackle cast. He does! <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not taking it back. No, it is a lot of fun. Um, but it is pure nonsense. It It rips off parts of Rosemary's baby ridiculously oh it absolutely does <laughs> um and the plot just and the doesn't... whole the whole thing is it's like an elaborate an elaborate satanic gaslighting plot <laughs> more or less it's just bizarre it makes I mean, no sense i i was started this episode by saying immoral tales was so brilliant because it's stuck up for films having no plot and this is what we need and now i'm complaining it's got no plot but I mean, to try and talk about the plot, it's it's a bit difficult because um, it basically starts with Carol, who's played by Vanessa Hidalgo, who goes to her her late brother's home because he's died. She's not quite sure how he's died. They're told an embolism, but she, she wants to go and check things out. Uh, she goes with her husband, Robert, um, who's played by Jeffrey Healy, to the former... I think she grew up there, Carol grew up there, and then Fiona, her late brother's widow, who's played by the wonderful Helgeline, has taken over the family estate. Um, and as soon as they get there, the electric's off, and Helga, or Fiona, just so happens to have about 50 black candles hanging around <laughs> hanging around like the place. Oh, you know, I just like some candles, the lights are gone out. And she's like, why have you got all these black candles? You know, so it starts off quite sinister. It starts off quite promising. I think that was what did it for me. They got all, She's got all these weird satanic pictures on the walls. And you think, oh, this is good. This looks quite sinister. But I think for me, then you know it just launches into sex scene after sex scene i want more of the more of that there wasn't enough goat fucking there's only one scene with the goat fucking they could have you know but it's know. amazing it is amazing <laughs> um just just a word on how galine before we we go on um for people that she was a huge huge star in sort of euro cult she was in some absolutely brilliant films um Including So Sweet, So Perverse, she was in Nightmare Castle, My Dear Killer, she was in The Vampire Night Orgy, Horror Rises from the Tomb, The Lorelei's Grasp, um, Rings Which of Which is Fear, my favourite horror roles. Horror Express, she was in that. She was also in, talking of Spanish films that need to get a release, she was in this amazing film called Killing of the Dolls, which was a 1975 film, which she starred alongside... Um, David Rocher, who who co-stars in Nashi's Al Caminante, which is about this weird uh, psycho killer who likes masks and dolls. It's so good. Um, and it did used to be floating around in a bootleg with no subs, but I think within the last year, someone's kindly subbed it. So I'd love someone like Mondo to pick that up, because that's a brilliant... She's, she's in that. But she was also in, so prior to Black Candles, she was in a couple of other Laraz films. She was in Stigma, which is a totally fucking bizarre film. It's sort of, it's about this psychic uh, boy 
who's into older women and she plays the mother in that and she's just so not motherly and she's also it's in just before this isn't just it just before this and it's one of those films i've seen it a couple of times and i forget watching it every time it's it's not great um and she's also in madam olga's pupils which is she plays a brothel madam in that for Laraz. Which I haven't seen, <laughs> and that's also just before this. Yeah, that's another one. It's in, it's an interesting film and it's worth seeing, but it's not it's not one of his best. It's about she runs this brothel and a girl dies um while she's with a client and um Helgelina's like the Madame Olga and then she gets a younger guy who gets a crush on her because it's a Jose Laraz film. So of course <laughs> as we said earlier in Black Candle, she's fifty. And she's naked for a lot of the time or in scanty lingerie. And you think, go Helga. You know, Fiona, she's a very carnal woman. <laughs> as soon as they arrive with a candle, she's giving uh, Carol's husband the eye. And she gives the best excuses for everything. Like, she she talks him into having an affair with her and sort of plays off the satanic elements, but... Also, he looks so much like Jamie Gillis that the whole time it just makes <laughs> it makes me wish that Jamie Gillis had been in this film. <laughs> yeah, because he hasn't got the charisma of Jamie Gillis. Has no, he? but bit... can you imagine that? Because <laughs> she's really fiery and really, you know, really up for it, and uh... <laughs> and he's only fiery in one scene. <laughs> yeah, he's a bit dull, sir. <laughs> Robert, um, he's a bit, you know, you just wonder why are all these women lusting over him because he's a bit... Well, mm. I think it's because he's a defrocked priest. Oh, yeah, they find that out and the the Satanists are like, because they are going to kill him to start with and then they think, hmm, you know. Well, it's kind of sexy. Like he... <laughs> and he, hasn't he been studying like demonology for the last 10 years just for the and, hell and of it he, and both he and carol fucking drop in these comments about their their own personal studies of the occult that are amazing and i know don't like they've just been sense. doing it casually for no reason whatsoever other than that they just find it interesting it was like it was kind of like my reference to the brazen bull earlier. Like, oh well, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> they get to this house and Fiona's there. the 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 brother is we we see the brother die at the beginning of the film. He's there with some woman and a and voodoo doll comes out, and then he <laughs> dies. So we know something's amiss. But Carol's sort of saying, "Hang on a minute, why why are there all these black candles?" And like you said, she just. Fiona just sort of explains it away. Oh, well, I like them. Doesn't she say, I like candles, it makes it more intimate? They're black. Yes. They're like ceremonial <laughs> candles. You wouldn't even, you'd have to go to a specialist shop. And seeing as she lives in the middle of nowhere, like they all do, in some manor house, it's like, you know, where would you find candles like that? So she voices... Carol At keeps the voicing emporium. her <laughs> concern to her husband, who supposedly studied demonology and Satanism <laughs> and was a priest, and he doesn't see anything wrong with anything. <laughs> He's just like, oh, well, maybe it's this, you know? It's just bizarre. So basically the long and the short of it is that they've got some sort of satanic cult going on where everyone has sex every five minutes. 
I mean, wouldn't you? I don't Maybe know. Not Some of the people goat. are a bit rough. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Some of the people are a bit rough. Um, there's also this sideline where they keep feeding um, Carol herbs in a bit of a Rosemary's Baby ripoff. Well, and also it's a lot like symptoms. So I don't think we mentioned, but there's this really subtle nod to folk horror and symptoms where Angela Pleasance's character talks about how she harvests these herbs that she's found and she not only does she put them in the food but she burns them as incense yes which is which is exactly what fiona does here and carol complains about the fact that they have a strange smell and she can smell them all the time so it's like she's making her these concoctions and she just can't get away from it she's got like a little greenhouse as well where she chats up fiona chats up robert with all her weird yes. plants she starts talking about all these poisonous plants and stuff and well, he's and like oh this... you're so you're so clever and then he suggests she should start growing weed and they have this weird conversation <laughs> where she sort of says she's like she'd have more money no he says you you could get more money if you grew cannabis what does he call it marijuana it's some really I think square he calls it word for in, it. in the dub. It's hilarious. <laughs> oh, but they have this ridiculous conversation where she talks about how she's she's growing digitalis and she holds it up and shows him and says, "Oh, but around here it's called foxglove and it's totally harmless. Foxglove is not totally harmless. <laughs> it's toxic and will kill you." <laughs> oh, and dear. it's that it's that sort of little detail that he puts throughout so many of his films where it makes you think there's some sort of conspiracy going on and here there actually is well there is because you've got the farmer old john (laughs) and his wife so his wife's really into the witch stuff he's not really into it and there's this amazing scene where uh where you meet those their sort of secondary characters but they're they're in it quite a lot actually where do you get that do you like it you little whore. When I saw you up in the house, I knew you were doing something. What the fuck are you up to? Careful, you son of a bitch. And worry about the animals. It's the only thing you're good for. Which fucking witch you are? One day you'll be discovered. And the lynchers is like in medieval times. Oh, don't be afraid, you fool. Nothing will happen to you. If the folks around here only knew... Yeah, those in our coven are important. Haven't you found out yet? So you've got those two um, who were... They're keeping the goats for the fucking. Um, And I'm (laughs) going to assume, because it's not really... It's not really explained, um, but they get the goat to mount this girl. Um, And I'm going to assume they're... they're, Are they trying to make Satan's (laughs) child... This is this is where I get confused. Yeah, or this they, is this is what's not explained. Or are they just do they just enjoy watching? Well, so the impression that I got from the bad dubbed dialogue is that in order to effectively work the magic they're trying to work, they need to harvest the goat's semen from inside a vagina. But what and is the magic? What is it? I I think the magic is bringing Carol over to their cult. 
that that's kind of why I said earlier it's really just all an elaborate yeah, but at one point they plot. want to kill Carol or they talk about killing Carol so why they it doesn't make a goddamn <laughs> bit of sense but okay so for a second the thing that makes the least amount of sense to me in this entire movie is and, and, and I mentioned this not too long ago in connection with the coming of sin and Raphael Mikado but so there's this actress named Lucille Jameson, which I can only assume is a pseudonym. And she plays the gorgeous woman who fucks the goat. And you have to wonder how, and this is her only IMDb credit. So I don't know if she's actually a hardcore actress or what she did the rest of the time, but this is her only credit. And so how did they talk her into, she's got, I think she's got three scenes in the film. Her first scene is a lesbian sex scene. Her second scene is where she fucks the goat, which is done really cleverly, but there's still a goat standing on top of this actress no, while she know. licks its face. <laughs> She makes out with a goat while it's <laughs> pretending to have sex with her. <laughs> like, just let that sink in for a second. Imagine you, imagine reading that script and thinking, this is fantastic. I am going to do this film. <laughs> Lucille Jameson, wherever you are, please find us. <laughs> I love the fact as well, before he comes on to do his business... <laughs> That there's this little tutorial about how you get the goat ready and everything, and and you've got, you the witchy, the goat. <laughs> you've got the witchy woman fluffing the goat and talking about the magic of the goat. You'd better stop that, or you'll get him too excited. Exactly what I want to do. What can I do for you? Your husband isn't around, you know. Keep your hands off. This is important. <laughs> you've heard of the evil eye, haven't you? It's bad luck. Now, you don't really know about those things. I've heard a little, but they're all stories. Stories, huh? I'm sure you've never seen a billy goat mounting a woman uh, and later coming inside her. No, never. Well, wait until tonight and you will see it. You'll see how the goat fucks her. And after, with the sperm of the beast, I'll show you how to prepare a portion that can murder Peter. So they've also got this priest with a long fingernail. Oh, my um, God, it's like a Coke nail. It's exactly like a Coke nail, but he uses it to stab people. <laughs> like, where did that idea come from? Instead of having him carry a small dagger or have some he's sort of elaborate satanic pendant, he's got a fucking sharpened Coke nail. And, and, and Carol notices there's something wrong with this, but nobody else seems to care. She's like, have you seen his fingernail? <laughs> and they're all and the, in the, on it the best is when she first meets him and fiona is like oh it's my uncle <laughs> yeah my uncle this dodgy looking priest he, he i think she calls him a vicar or something she's like oh it's just my uncle the, the vicar with the stabby fingernail it's <laughs> Um, we also haven't mentioned to go back to symptoms um, and the coming of sin. 
is Fiona gets uh, no sorry Carol Carol gets these these sexualized dreams which are really oh, bizarre. Yes. But she's running around in this sort of white underwear and stocking. And have you noticed all the women in this wear stockings and boots all the time? Yes. Every, so every time Carol has sex with her husband, she is wearing boots in every <laughs> single scene. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. No, it's it's amazing. But the <laughs> the her her like sexual nightmares are basically incest dreams where she imagines herself having sex with her dead brother which is maybe my single favorite thing about well, he this did film. he did used to like the incest themes though the it's they come glorious. up in quite a few of his films <laughs> so they they killed the brother off so they had to bring him back for some incest um at the, at... and and fiona joins in in some of these dreams <laughs> and fiona's always creeping around like watching and oh yeah we like, forgot to mention that yeah it's like i talked about that earlier film el moron there was that other film that he made the comedy el periscopio with laura jemser which was about this kid who, who developed a periscope to spy on this nurse so he liked that voyeurism <laughs> theme and for some reason like fiona is always like creeping around like spying on people having sex She's quite sinister. And by, by people, you mean Carol and her husband. She, she, <laughs> she does loves watching them. The, she does within the first 10 minutes of the film. As soon as they get there, she's like spying. She's got little holes in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> she is really, really sinister. Um, but I'm, she has her priorities straight, you have to admit. <laughs> I've got my little list of notes um, here, which I posted on Facebook earlier. So we've mentioned the herbs, the farmer and the goat, the farmer's accent I haven't mentioned. God, the fucking accent. So he's got this accent. If Triana was bad, he's got an accent that sometimes sounds Welsh, sometimes sounds Scottish, sometimes it sounds Indian. And sometimes it's just like, what is that? It's just like, <laughs> I don't know who dubbed him, but it's the worst accent ever, the farmer. It sounds like 90 people dubbed him. <laughs> like really everybody terrible. got a different sentence. <laughs> um, he gets a nasty end. I don't feel this is a spoiler if we mention what uh, happens No, we have farmer. to talk about we this. We have to talk about that. He he falls out with the cult. Um and, but the reason he falls out with the cult is the best thing ever. <laughs> so he has sex with his wife, the the one that we've mentioned already, who is the goat's caretaker and <laughs> fluffer. fluffer. So <laughs> the crow-faced hag. <laughs> yeah, so he comes home and his wife is in bed wearing this lingerie. This bitch is in heat. I'm suffering. What are you waiting for? Fuck me now. You're drunk. I want it right now. 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 If you won't do it, Peter'll do it. Peter! Where are you going? Peter! Come here! I need to get it off with you! Get over there! So he comes home and his wife is wearing this lingerie and demands that he fucks her immediately. 
And he climbs on top of her and lasts about 30 seconds. She's <laughs> disgusted. He, he rolls over drunk to the side of the bed and she somehow convinces a farmhand to yeah, come in the bedroom. <laughs> to come in the bedroom and fuck her while her husband is laying right next to her in bed. And it's like, that's the last straw and he can't handle it anymore and he has to go warn Carol. <laughs> He pays, though. He pays badly. He does. So he, he basically does. gets taken in by the cult and they spread him out over a table. Oh. Spread out his buttocks. <laughs> I think I mentioned this in my review because I thought the camera lingered a bit too long on the sweaty. It lingers so long. This is the longest <laughs> scene for no apparent reason. Sweaty, like hairy buttocks um but it's also his whole back <laughs> it's, it's like, this sword being dragged almost erotically down his back and over his butt and it takes like two minutes <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't sound like a long time when i say it out loud but you're sitting there watching the scene go it's on. not pleasant it's not no pleasant. <laughs> But it, it, it gets rammed up his asshole in the end. And you're quite relieved because it means you don't have to look at it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which you kind of have to wonder. So this happens probably 10 to 15 minutes before the film is over. And you kind of have to wonder why it goes so... So as we mentioned, the brother is killed within the first, I don't know, three minutes of the film. But... It seems like he dies of a satanically induced heart attack. So there's not a lot of gore or violence. And, you know, or instead horror, of or yeah, anything, it's just people having anything. sex. This is what's <laughs> my problem with it. Well, which is also why I loved it. But And also so... <laughs> there were cult like medallions look like they came out of a charity shop. They're oh my god, so, they're, they're so <laughs> Random funny. beads and shit. <laughs> of the devil's paw. That... So when the when the brother is killed in the very beginning of the film, he's starting to have sex with this woman who's wearing a necklace of a giant hand <laughs> that, she, that, she that she describes as the devil's paw and they kind of have a laugh about it and then he dies. It looks like it's cut out of tinfoil. It's really awful. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> and there's but... other shots where they keep they've got this like necklace that looks like the oh. sort of thing you buy in the supermarket in the costumes. <laughs> <laughs> they, act, they act like it's some sort of sacred like thing and there's not even a pentagram or anything on it. It's just this necklace. No, and everybody's <laughs> everybody's always rubbing it all over their tits for some reason. <laughs> just quickly return back to the theme of ass raping um for oh a yeah also wait hold on i think i think we need to talk about why laraz decided all right 10 minutes before this movie is over someone's gonna die by having a, sh a sword shoved up their ass like where does that come from i mean it's like we haven't had any horror and this is a satanic horror so you know let's do something horrible but you would you would think that, and certainly if you took just kind of the average seventies satanic horror movie, probably if someone was going to be killed, they would have their throat slit in a ritual. But no, it's sort of this ultimate sadistic act that 
The only comparison I can think of is the sort of alleged death of Edward II, where he has the red-hot poker shoved up his ass. It's not nice at all, is it? No. What, it's horrible. What's interesting in this, he used um, cults in Deviation, which is ni- his 1971 film. They were like an orgy sort of hippie cult. Yes. Um, and he doesn't Lots really... Of drugs. I don't know if it's because the, the actors aren't as good, but he just doesn't really seem to use the cult angle as much as he could. I think it's because he hated the actors. <laughs> which is a shame <laughs> because it works in Deviation, um, it and, does. Yeah, so I would have liked to have seen more of that, where you don't really see much of the cult together until the end, and you see them gathered around the table to watch the sword go up the ass, and then there's like a final orgy thing, Rosemary's Baby thing, where the priest gets in on the action. And I was thinking, hang on a minute, how come it's the priest? Where's the demon? Well, Where's the goat? Well, it reminded me of... They've done all this so the priest can have a shag. It's Be- like, it, which the... which reminded me so much of To the Devil a Daughter, where it's the priest who's the one having sex. Yeah, it's all a bit of a con, really. I mean, he's yeah, got that no hideous one... fingernail. <laughs> no one is living deliciously in this movie. No, they're not. Um, I just... <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up, I just one last note that I had. So, um, Robert, the husband, is a bit of a shit, and he gets taken in by Fiona, and he goes a bit evil. Um, I don't know if it's the magic or the herbs or what, because they keep making um, they keep making Carol drink these horrible herbs all the time. She's like, oh, I don't like them. It's a bit like Rosemary's Baby, apart from she's not pregnant, so there's no reason for her to be taking them. Um. And so he he goes a bit evil because he spent the night with Helgeline. And the way he expresses this is Carol comes back from London. And so he decides to take her um, anally, (laughs) quite viciously. And she's all like, no, we've never done this before. And he's really like... You know, I don't care. Yeah, it just carries on. <laughs> but in the scene that follows... He kind of tells her to deal with it. Yeah, like, deal with it. I'm just getting it in there. And she's, like, screaming and writhing in pain. And then the next shot is their sort of post-coital smoke. <laughs> so she's got a cigarette on, apparently not bothered by what her husband's just done. And then he comes into shot with a fucking... <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just a regular pipe it's a giant pipe it's like a Sherlock Holmes pipe <laughs> that he never smokes in the rest of the film you never see him smoking or with a pipe <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that if that <laughs> If that little detail was because so she has this <laughs> before they have anal sex, he <laughs> he has this conversation with her and she says to him, you know, you've seemed really different. And I'm wondering if when they wrote the script, they were like, OK, let's include something that he doesn't do. Yeah, part the of this new of image. <laughs> well, he were out. I just got this huge pipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But she 
she's totally nonplussed by it. She's like, okay, you're going to light my cigarette. I'm going to lay here looking satisfied, even though I was pissed off 30 yeah, seconds ago. even though took me by force. <laughs> Although you know. I have to say, her reaction to that is way more erotic than, <laughs> than the reaction to the sex scene that we talked about in The Coming of Sin when when Lorna and Chico have sex and Lorna is, like, violently screaming. Yeah, she does sort of get into it in the end. She's like, no, she don't does. do that. And then she's like... It's like he wins her over. I love the ending to this. It's just totally like, yeah, we've done all this. Now the end. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> the laziest fucking ending. I think I mentioned that in my angry review. I think what's funny about this is even though um Laraz when he did this and he wasn't fond of doing it and I think he directed it under his pseudonym Joseph Braunstein. Um <laughs> which he, he I think he directed a couple of his slashes under that as yeah. well. Um around this time he also made these two comedies. Uh, the National Mem- Memory, which was 1981, so it was a year before, 1983 made Polvos um, which were really big in Spain. And I've seen them. They, um, I don't think they're fan-sub, but they're really good. They're like horror comedies. So he was doing those and doing this. It's just like, um, you know, it's just really strange. Um, it's so strange. And he also did this um, historical comedy in 1983 called Juana la Loca, de Ves en Cuando, which is um, got a lot of Catholic jokes and it's like, it's a bit silly and a lot of the jokes are quite Spanish. Um, but that's about a crazy woman, a crazy queen who gets obsessed with a man. She's completely mental, but it's funny. And the the set design on that's beautiful, so it's probably you know, I just wonder what he was was going on for him at the time, because he was making these quite you know successful films in Spain. Why he went to do Black Candles when he apparently didn't want to do it anyway? But the goat, I don't <laughs> think I don't know. Money did he did give the goat quite a lot of airtime. He did. <laughs> <laughs> the goat gets almost as much screen time as the beast in Barabchik's The Beast. <laughs> well, he's like the star. He lasts longer than the men. He, he does. Which is why he deserves more to do at the conclusion. Well, there is no conclusion, is there? I think no. that's I think that's part of the reason why I was so annoyed as well. I think subsequent viewings of the film i've my attitude is softened towards it um it's so much fun because it is I a mean, lot of fun it's really silly <laughs> the scene with the pipe <laughs> scene with the pipe the goat the sword the ridiculous dialogue um you know it is all quite ridiculous so yeah i think i, I don't understand anyone who dislikes <laughs> lots this. of people dislike it though and i can so those people are wrong I, I i was one of those people although i didn't hate it i just you know you were outraged at how ridiculous it is well i just wanted more because it's an arouse isn't it he, he, interestingly as well for anyone who hasn't seen it he did um a 1985 after he did the comedies and that, he went on to do a mini series on Goya, 
which, which I is fucking need beautiful. To see. It's really beautiful. So that's another thing that should be restored. It's you can get it on DVD and you can get an English friendly release. And I didn't know until recently, actually, they, it was shown over here on Channel 4 in the 90s. I never caught it first time around. I actually just imported a DVD and it's English friendly. But it's really beautiful. So, you know, again, you think as a filmmaker, he was, you know, so overlooked. Even even films like Black Candles, even in my angry review... I had to concede that the atmosphere was just amazing because, again, it's in this house in the middle of the country and the dream scenes where you've got Carol walking through these gardens and it's all misty and stuff. You know, even those films have got something to offer. So it just seems criminal to me. Yeah, me too. I I don't understand why he hasn't gotten attention by this point especially i mean if you think about so if you think about some of the other directors who are featured in immoral tales and some of whom we will cover in the next couple episodes like jess franco and john rollin and even baravchik and rob grier as well in the last probably five years most of them have had either their really important titles or the bulk of their films as in the case of Roland restored and released to blu-ray and even though you know they deserve more critical attention somebody like laraz you still can't find most of his films it just seems unfair no it's really unfair as long as they don't include the the sevilla connection in that <laughs> 1992 <laughs> film and he also i know it's completely off topic made this really fucking bizarre um 1979 film called The Golden Lady, which was I like was a, just gonna ask you which about is that mentioned because I in think you've seen that and I, I haven't. have, and it's got a cameo, <laughs> cameo from Desmond Llewellyn playing the Q character, which is amazing. But it's awful. It's just fucking awful, and I'm 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 pretty sure um, a moral tale says it's awful as well. So probably not those two, <laughs> but the rest of them. No, yes. but there there are a lot that deserve to be seen. I mean, even films like Madame Olga's Pupils is like there's a sex exploitation film. It's up there with stuff that Jess Franco made. So why isn't it being restored? Yeah, or even later stuff like Rest in Pieces or the film he made with Jack Taylor, uh, Edge of the Axe. Which I love those. I know they're really cheesy and they've got these awful American actors trying to to sort of, they they can't act at all. And he's trying to make it like a big, big budget slasher. So they're really cheesy, but they're a lot of fun. They are a lot of fun. Yeah, and and there are so many cheesy slashers that have gotten these deluxe Blu-ray releases, like, you, we can make some room for rest in pieces. Definitely. And Jack Taylor, for fuck's sake. We're going to have to have a whole yeah. series on Jack Taylor one day. We, I mean, so a year ago, when we did our lesbian vampire series, we talked about doing that. So we we need to make that happen this year so we can talk about him getting his knob out more often. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> For any newcomers, um, yeah, visit our first ever episodes. They were quite fun. 
where I discovered I actually know quite a lot about Jack Taylor's knob. <laughs> <laughs> I think it really set the tone for the whole podcast. It really did. And a year later, we're still talking about knobs, so... You know. And Jack Taylor's. And Jack Taylor's. <laughs> <laughs> I think that wraps it up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to part one of our series inspired by Immoral Tales. Tune back in three weeks for part two, where we'll explore some films from Loraz's fellow Spaniard, the prolific Jess Franco. I'd also like to mention that Kat and I recorded a commentary track for Arrow's upcoming release of Valerian Borovchik's little scene masterpiece, The Story of Sin, which will be out in March. Kat, is there anything you'd like to mention? I just wanted to remind everyone to pre-order our upcoming print issue of Diabolique magazine, which promises to be spectacular. The issue is based on the theme of Asian horror and is packed with articles on everything from classic and contemporary Japanese ghost stories to Kurosawa's Throne of Blood and how that relates to traditional theatre. We celebrate lesbian love in The Handmaiden, look at the horrors of Korean War and also celebrate the legacy of Godzilla. And it also includes an interview I did with the master of J-horror himself, Hideo Nakata. And I also wanted to mention that I have two articles coming up in the latest edition of Screen Magazine, which is due out in mid-February. This includes a retrospective on The Company of Wolves and also part two of my Mario Bava horror retrospective. Once again, thanks for listening and let us know what you think over on Facebook or iTunes. Bye.